welcome back to Fitter Talk. This is your host, Curtis Oldie. For break time this week, we are going to keep it short since I have got a long interview coming up with a special guest. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to remind everybody that the Peer Support Helpline is available on the website, so go to the Peer Support tab at the Pipe Fitters Local 533 website and pull that tab up and you can get the contact information as well as uh, other resources on there. Something else to keep in mind, um, we do have nine instructors who have gone through the program as well as four apprentices and we're working on a uh, time and schedule for the general membership. So if that is something you are interested, be sure to reach out to uh, myself, Lee, or Pat O'Hara, as well as the office, and we'll be sure to uh, get you on the list. And if you got any suggestions, would work to have those classes, uh, let us know that as well. We may do a general one, uh, just kind of let everybody know what it's all about, and then uh, schedule those classes. They'll be either eight or ten hours. We're working on that as well. But uh, any questions on that, feel free to reach out to that. Without further ado, though, we're going to jump right into this week's episode. It's actually international, and uh, I'll let our guest, who is going to be speaking here shortly, kind of let you know where we're interviewing. So with that, this is your host for Fitter Talk, Curtis Oldie, and on to the rest of our episode. Welcome to Fitter Talk. This is your host, Curtis Oldie, and I got a special guest today, and we're going to jump right into it because I'll have a intro we just listened to, but uh, with me today is Patty Cavanaugh. Patty, thanks for taking the time to uh, meet with us and uh, share a little history about uh, the trade union here, um, iConnect. So maybe uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and where we're sitting here uh, today. Okay, well I'll start with um, the union itself first. Connect Trade Union are the, by far the largest craft union in Ireland, more or less the only really. Um, we're the second largest union in the private sector in the country. We represent over 40,000 people, um, maybe 40,000 members. And just to put it into perspective, we um, represent 21 of the 25 craft trades in Ireland. So as well as your usual ones, you'd know, pipe fitter, plumber. Yeah. Um, we represent electricians, instrumentation, um, E&I, which is electrical instrumentation, mechanics, heavy goods mechanics. So all the trades, 21. The only, it's easier to say the four we don't represent. The four trades we don't represent are stonemason, uh, bricklayer, plaster and tiler. So okay. basically building civil. Well, I, I find that pretty interesting because I've talked with different people in the, in the United States and they, I don't think they really understand um, what all unions you represent. And I remember talking with some of the individuals before I left out of Kansas City and they were like, well, they, they knew they did electrical work and stuff like that, but I don't think that they really realize that you represent all those trade crafts. So. Yeah. And we believe that puts us in a kind of a unique position of power. Um, we give the example of, say, some of our smaller cohorts, like would be, say, maybe sprinkler fitter or something, one of those trades, and you would have a small number of those on a big project. But if, we, if the employers have a dispute with those sprinkler fitters, they're actually fighting with every craft on the site because they're all in the one union. Yeah. So it gives us a unique bit of power yeah. in how to represent workers. And I think we're quite successful on it. Um, in the last number of years, we've been particularly successful 
of getting in place some legislation. Now we've worked hard over a few years to get that in, um, but they're called sectoral employment orders. So a sectoral employment order means that if you take a sector of the economy, so just to take electrical contracting, which would be electricians in construction, um, by having an SEO in place, it means that the pay, the sick pay and pension is legally binding on every employer in that sector, whether union or not. Okay. So that's a particularly strong piece of legislation to have because it gives a very good floor. The other extras, yes, the union will, you come to your union for those, but at least every worker in, those sector, in that sector is guaranteed his pay, his pension and his sick pay. Okay. By law. So that was really successful piece of legislation for us. We all, there's one for construction proper itself and there's one for mechanical contracting, which is mechanical pipefitters, plumbers in construction. Yeah. So basically it means that, again, all their terms, are, those three terms are enshrined in law. Okay. And one of the things you had mentioned before we started recording was uh, the percentage of the, the crafts workers, for example, here in the country that are part of the union. What, what percentage was yeah. that? Well, we call it union density. You call okay. it market share. Um, overall in Ireland, union density is around approximately 30%. But because of the history of craft workers being very strong union, it's about to 60% in craft workers. Now, I know that to be fairly high compared to the States, for instance. Yeah. Um, not as high as some of our European Nordic yeah. neighbours in particular, you know. But it's still a good, it's a relatively healthy place to be. Yeah, we're, we, we've taken a huge dip here in the, in the States, but I feel with a lot of the work coming up and the work that's required for the skill sets that's required, um, we're starting to see a lot more push. I mean, uh, just in our local alone, uh, we've probably almost doubled, if not tripled, our our apprentices coming in through the, the program. Part of that's due to retirement and things like that, but we're seeing a lot more growth, especially on our service side. Mm -hmm. Well, just for your members' uh, information, um, we have international federation agreement with the UA, with the United Association. We have them with the IBW and we have them with ETU in Australia. Because as a union, we believe that because of the growth in multinationals, that the trade union movement has to operate on the same plane. And we have to work together across the world, not just we're in our own particular country. Yeah. And we have to work together on how we can deal with these companies who are employing people in Ireland, in the States, in you name it. So it's how we challenge them on an international scale and how we work together. And I'd like to give a very good example. Um, there was a, a dispute a number of years ago um, with um, Schindler's, Otis Lifts, sorry. And um, it was in Australia. And the Australian unions wrote out and said, look, can you lean on Otis wherever you can and try and highlight what's going on down here in Australia? And some unions wrote letters and had protests. Our guys, and we organise all the lift workers here, our guys walked off the job here. And the issue was resolved in 24 hours. Nice. In Australia, because of actions yeah. taken in Ireland. Right? It spooked them that this thing could spread. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we have to work together as yep. unions. 
Another thing we're looking at, in particular with the American unions, is exchange of labour. Um, multinationals want a certain type of worker to a certain high standard in fairness. And if we're going to have that type of situation, we would like to see a situation where if labour is, say, workers in short supply in the States and plentiful here, obviously employers are going to look then there for, to bring okay. workers in because they're English speaking, they're highly skilled. And if we can work together to ensure if that happens, that it's union labour, we look at that as particularly important. Yeah. That'd be great. And we're working with unions on that basis internationally. Um, as a union, we're, we're affiliated to a, um, an association called the Global Power Trade Unions, which is electrical unions from all around the world. Get together once a year in a, in a, in a conference just to exchange ideas, what's happening in your country, what's the legislation like in your place, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et um, I've just got elected onto the executive of the World Plumbing Council. Okay. And I hope in the future that we can use the World Plumbing Council in a similar way, that we can work together on international standards, trying to ensure that labour is mobile and moves this union labour. I think we can work together with those unions to do that. Is there a lot of limitations here in Ireland bringing um, outside workers in for work visas and stuff like yes, that? Because I, I don't really know, but I, I hear from our neighbors to the north in Canada, it's, it's easier for them to bring in workers, for example, from Asia maybe, and I may be misspeaking, but the, it's easier for them to bring them in than it is to bring um, UA members up from United States for some of those larger projects they had here several years ago. Yeah, well, the situation we have here, there is an issue with trying to bring craft workers into Ireland. And I explain what it is. We have what's called a, we have a um, national qualification framework. And basically what they do is they take every worker qualification and they're ranked on a scale from one to 10. And the Irish apprenticeship comes in at level six. And unfortunately, some in Europe and the States and Canada, believe it or not, is level five according to our authorities. Okay. So if a plumber, pipe fitter, electrician comes in from the States, um, there is a little gap there, but we, we work with Solus, the national training body. So as that can be identified, the proper training can be put in place and the person can then can get that and okay. work here as a fully qualified craft. So we work with people, and we have quite a few guys have come to Ireland in the last number of years in particular, both mechanical and electrical from the States and Canada, especially America. I think it's, a lot of people have this Irish ancestry yeah. and they want to just come here for a while to see it. Yep. And we work with them when they come in. We have a good few in the last year, you know, a number. Um, and they come in here and we help them and we get them up to bridge that gap for them and they come in and can work here as, as whatever their trade is. Okay. And, and since we're kind of on that, that path of, you know, uh, working, what parts of Ireland, are you pretty much all the way across Ireland or are you pretty much in the larger metros? Like Dublin. Yeah. Uh... Ireland's a unique country. It's a small country for starters. It's only 5 million people. We passed 5 million this year. Really? Yeah. So it's a small country that way. But the density, um, say, population density is quite low, you know, for the size of it. 
Urban areas like any traditional, uh, like industrial bases, would be more stronger union, but it's well spread out in Ireland to a degree. Okay. Obviously, it is higher in the in the urban areas, but there are rural areas where there's very strong union. Some historical, but you must remember Ireland's such a small country. People can travel to work here, basically really from wherever they live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, uh, I, I was actually surprised how many people we've talked. Like I said, we, we started in Dublin, went down to Kilkenny and over to, um, I believe it was Limerick and then Galloway and I forgot the town we just came off, but it was on the west coast. It was up in Sligo County, uh, but uh, a lot of Czechoslovakia and, uh, and different uh, nationalities like that. I, I was surprised we're over here, uh, you know, running businesses and so forth. Yes, uh, like um, a lot of that's to do with the European Union and uh, free travel that's allowed under the Europe, once you're a member of the EU, you can travel freely to any country. Okay. Um, a lot of that has been positive. And we have a lot of members who would be Eastern European in particular. Um, but we found when they came here initially, there was a big distrust of unions with East Europeans because in the past, the trade union was an organ of the communist state. Yeah. And people didn't trust them because of that. But when they get here and see how the unions operate here. Um, actually, once you get them in, they're actually very stalwart members. They become yeah. very, very active. So we have a good history of that. No, we, I, I uh, taught to labor history at our local and I taught to labor history up at our, or took labor history up at our international training program, which I think maybe you have attended up at uh, Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, yeah. And uh, one of the things that I feel there's a, still a common theme, even, you know, a hundred and... 40, 50 years later, as we started developing these unions in the United States uh, back in the 1800s, is there still this push of, if, if you're part of a union, you're, there's that tie to communism and socialism. And, and I think uh, it's just kind of a scare tactic. I see a lot of it is, people it is. because they don't understand or know, that's just what they want to say, so. Well, if you go back to Ann Arbor, um, we've been lucky to be over there now three times, four times. Um, Brian, the Assistant General Secretary, has been over there even more often. I don't get the time, a lot of the time, to get out as much as I'd like. Um, however, and this is the important thing of this association we have and the, the agreements we have with yourselves and with the IBW is we've learned so much from going over there and watching how you do things as well. Mm -hmm. um, the apprenticeship system is different. The union run the apprenticeship system in the States. In Ireland, it's state-run. It's an employment contract between the apprentice and the employer that's enshrined in law. So if I'm an employer and I take on an apprentice, I have to see him through his apprenticeship, okay? I have to keep him for the duration. Um, we have a thing here called the Redundancy Payments Act. If you're let go after two years of employment, you're entitled to redundancy. However, if an employer fulfills his obligation for an apprentice, and keeps him for the full four years and has him fully qualified, he can let him go without that act applying. Okay. But if he lets him go between his second and fourth year and he breaks the, that apprenticeship, he has broken the contract and then the apprentice is entitled to redundancy. Okay. But the one thing I have learned on the training aspect for yourselves is, and I would stand over this, the Irish apprenticeship is second to none, right? Um, and that is proven in the world skills. Per capita, we're the best performing country in the world in the world skills, 
right, per capita. Yeah. However, we were traditionally very poor on constant reskilling, upskilling post apprenticeship. Once you're qualified, we're we're quite poor at that. We we, we struggle with that as well. In yeah. uh, at least in my home local in Kansas City, uh, we we yeah. push trying to get. Um, journeyman back in and we remind them when they turn out in our five-year apprenticeship program that don't forget where that training center is because things are constantly changing um, and one of the classes I teach is OSHA uh, and we call it pipe fitter safety because it's 40 hours versus a 30-hour OSHA but um, I've had journeymen who have actually came back through there um, and the question I've asked why you're taking this because it's not required but it's because new things come up in safety that they need to be aware of um, and you know they want to make sure that when the time comes we we have parts of the country and it may come at Kansas City sometime where you have to have a current OSHA or something like that but like I, I teach several classes one of them being the the maglev class which is the turbo core class um, you know we're trying to get more people involved with that and that's kind of geared towards those journeymen as well as some of the advanced classes on our construction side um, so uh, it, it is, is a struggle I will say yeah that. but that's what we have learned from yourselves and we are improving that now and it's been union driven because we're experienced with yourselves and with the Australians and seeing how they do it and I think that's crucial about the interaction internationally that we learn from each other um, and that's part of it we've so much so we've taken a decision now as a trade union to actually put some money aside now and build our own training centre, which we've never ever, no union in Ireland has ever done that. And that's because it's so, the apprenticeship system is all state run. Yes. So there was never really, we would consider a need. But now that we see how quick te technology is changing, how quickly health and safety changes, the standards, how they change between multi-skilling, upskilling, you name it. So we've taken a, an approach, learning completely off of yourselves and the other unions that do it, that it's something we must get into, right? Because, and a, we have a simple um, motto for this, is the more you know and the more skilled you are, the more you can charge for your labor. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I tell, tell them that all the time, that the more, and I, 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 the saying I say is, is the more, uh, knowledge you have is like having a set of tools. The more tools you got in your, your, your bag or on um, my construction guys, I'll call it their bucket because they take a bucket with them to work. But the more you have in your bucket for tools to pull out to do different things, the more valuable you're not only going to be for yourself, but for the contractors you work for and, and your local union. Yep. And that's down to that international interaction that we've worked so hard on the last number of years. Yep. And we exchange information. Um, the IBW would be very good to us as regards information on um, offshore generation, etc. It's, be, it's becoming a big thing now in Ireland, the offshore uh, wind farms, onshore, offshore. Believe it or not, what's becoming a big thing now in Ireland is solar. Okay. And if anyone would, ever, would have told you 20 years ago to be solar in Ireland, you wouldn't believe them, right? Yeah. And that's because of the changes in technology. Yeah, there's been a huge change on that to yeah. where it's a lot more efficient now than exactly. what it used to be. So it's a huge thing. So um, I was just down today in a place called Bordnamona. That's where I've come from this morning. Um, 90 years, they were a company that, a state-owned company, who harvest peat and turn them into, we call them briquettes, that burn. Yeah. We even had power stations running off it for years. 
But now, because of global warming, they're get, they have to go out with that. But they're repurposing all that land now for solar farms and wind farms. So it's just to show us the way the technology is yeah. changing. And we have to change with it. Simple as that. Since you brought that up, is peat something that they burn in a lot of the houses? and uh, It would be traditionally, still? yes. It would be traditionally, especially in the West. There's been that smell. We, we were actually in a small pub yesterday and... Uh, between there and, and some of the different castles we've had the opportunity to travel through, um, it was just kind of a different smell, and I couldn't tell if it was like a, a coal, um, but it didn't really smell like that, but I was wondering if that's what it no, was. No, probably, there's two types. There's the briquettes, which are, is compressed turf, yeah. and then there's the turf sod, which is generally just a homemade product where guys, what I mean by that is they just cut it out of the ground and dry it. Yeah. Uh, it's prob- it doesn't burn as efficiently as the briquettes, which are compressed and yeah. made to burn. It looked like it was maybe Light a coat. mix of both, because some yeah. looked a little bit bigger and some were, looked more like a briquette. Yeah, so there's a mix between a, I would say the briquette is between turf and coal. It's like a yeah. hard, compressed yeah. thing, whereas the turf is a soft, softer yeah. sod. But it was turf for years and years, for centuries. Okay. It was turf fires. And the briquette became a product in the tortoise. Okay. And um, as every technology was applied to it, you know, and they learned how to make of it. But unfortunately, that's gone, gone now. The last um, turf burning station, power generating station, closed about four, five years ago. Okay. And we have to look at new technologies to replace that. So it's, you're talking the wind farm, the solar. Okay. And even the, le- the legal requirements have changed because my son is actually building a house at the moment. And as part of a one-off plan permission in the County of Kenny, he must, in his house, have air-to-water heating for the central heating, and he must have solar for panels, on, and that's okay. a stipulation. You will not be allowed to build a house now without those in, for one-off in the countryside. Yeah. It'll soon be everywhere, but it's starting. Yeah. That's where they're starting. So that's an example of the technology and what, how it's changing and how we have to change with it. All right. Well, since you brought up Kilkenny, and I think you mentioned before uh, you were from Kilkenny, maybe uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you went from uh, growing up in Kilkenny to here in Dublin uh, with the trade union. Yeah, well, I began my apprenticeship in 1978, so that'll tell you how old I am, starters. And quite unusually, I became a shop steward as an apprentice on a particular job, Um, and that was because... The area of Kilkenny I'm from is traditionally a coal mining area and that would have been strongly unionised. So both my grandparents would have been coal miners. My father actually started in the mines at 14 but he left early. Um, He went to the UK but my father and mother would have been strong union. And when I finished my apprenticeship I got a job in a a dairy plant which is about six miles from where I live, seven miles from where I live. And it's the biggest dairy plant in Europe, actually, because the dairy industry is huge in Ireland. I I saw that going through the countryside a lot. Yeah, I I grew up on a dairy, so it was kind of, she got tired of me saying, look at those milk cows. Well, I'm the opposite, actually, believe it or not. I was actually, from the age of six weeks to 16, actually, I lived in Dublin because my father was working here, but he always wanted to move back home. Yeah. And he moved back home, and um, uh, I've gone the full cycle now and married to a farmer's daughter and live beside the farm so <laughs> so it's gone to full yeah my two sons from the, the height worked on the farm you know so 
it's a and it is a great way of life in fairness you know it gives you a realization that work is you know but uh so then i became a shop steward in the plant in the, in the dairy and i became a youth rep on the executive of the union here and in 2009 um we have a regional office in the head office is in dublin but then we have a regional office in galway limerick cork and watford and the official in the Watford office was retiring and I was asked would I go for the job and I did and thank God I was successful and I was in the Watford office from 2009 to 2016 and that is covers an area of Kilkenny, Wexford, Watford, Carlow, Leash, you know, Wicklow. So that's that area, it's a particular region. Yeah. We call it the Southeast region. And then in 2016, the job came up here for General Secretary and I went and I was lucky enough to get it, 2016. And like to the question you asked earlier on, where it says, um, what's the density or is our members mostly in urban areas, which they tend to be generally like any union. So every general secretary of this union up to that point had either come from Dublin or Cork. So I reckon I was the first from outside any of the major, you know, industrial areas. Yeah. And probably lucky due to the fact that at that time as well, I, when I was in the Southern office, each regional secretary has a national area of responsibility. And mine was for the public service at the time. So it was a very high profile post from 2010 to 2000. And, 16 because of the recession, because of what was happening in the country. Uh -huh. So I gained a lot of um, publicity or notoriety, or whatever we want to put it, during that time. So lucky, came up here as General Secretary in 2016, and um, I'm delighted with the way things are going. Our membership has grown every year since. Um, we're in a good position, thank God for it financially. And um, we're looking now to expand into training. As part of that, we have a project team in place to look at that budget, type of training, type of premises and where. And we're currently going through that process at the moment. So um, we hope to be, by next year or the year after, to have our own training centre. That's, okay. the, that's the plan. It's, it's all ready to go. It's just a question of finding the right place now and the right projects, you know. Yep. So that's where we're trying to lead it. So it just goes to show how far the union has come in 103 years that initially just being a, when this union formed first, we were the, we were caught, we were a, a steam fitter union, yeah. basically. <clears throat> and you were talking about what was called the Irish Locomotive and, and um, Shipbuilding uh, Union. And you were talking about, it started with 365 members and then we've grown up to 40,000. Okay, well, that's, that's a good transition. Let's go back to, you had kind of told us a little bit about the history when we first sat down, and um, let's kind of maybe go kind of back over that, maybe um, a little bit, uh, maybe some of the history on the trade unions to where, um, leading up to 1920 when you guys were, were formed, and, and we can talk about uh, um, the first secretary. Okay, well, we give the background. Um, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your members will know that Ireland's a newly independent country. We're 100 years independent. 
got independence in 1922 after 800 years of struggle. But we got there in the end. Um, we all know about, we all hear about the Easter Rising. That was the big rise in 1916, etched on in our history, without doubt. Um, for, unsuccessful. In fact, I, th I think there's been a rising every 50 years in Ireland over that 800 years, right? And that was unsuccessful as well in 1916, but at least it marked a change in the, con in the consciousness of people. It really, because of the leaders being executed, it really fermented that independence drive. Mm -hmm. And in 1918, the pro-independence party Sinn Féin uh, swept the boards in the British general election here in Ireland. And they refused to take their um, seats in Westminster. They formed their own provisional government in Ireland. They had an abstentionist policy. And that government elected Countess Markovic as the Minister for Labour. She came from a, historically from a wealthy landlord family, but they always had a high social conscience and she became involved in the independence struggle. And she came to some craft leaders and said, look, um, we'd like to form a, an Irish engineering union. And the meeting was held in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin in 1920. And they elected a committee and the notice for that meeting said towards one big Irish engineering union. And that's what's on our history book. Okay. We're still, it was one union for all trades, all craft and engineering workers. And we think we're, we're almost there. We've 21 of the 25 recognised craft trades. So we're getting there. Yeah. And um, in fairness to Countess Markovic, she gave a grant of £100 to the, to the guys to form the union because there was expenses in starting the union and registration and meetings. And she signed as guarantor on a loan for £2,000 to buy a premises. And in fairness, with that money, the union that was formed was their union and the building that they purchased was this building we're in. Okay. And that's been our head office since day one. We have a long history and it's in the book because of the policy we had of one big Irish engineering union. We've been working with amalgamations and subsuming unions and over the years now we've built up to, from representing two trades in that first union to representing 21 of the 25. And that's where we are now to this day. And we have, one thing we have is a strong identity. We've a lot of unions, as you, I'm sure you have in the States, that we would call, and good unions, we call them general unions. Mm -hmm. They take in every category, yeah. but ours is completely craft and engineering workers. And it was always that way from day one and will always be that way. Yeah, that's similar to, um, for a long time in the country, going back to you know, a little bit of labor history and going back to a gentleman by the name of Sam Gompers, um, he formed the American Federation of Labor, which was basically formed as a way for the, all of the labor unions to work together to basically when it came to legislation and stuff like that. And they had an um, office in Washington, D.C. And that's pretty much how it was set up, was strictly a craft trade union. Um, and then somewhere, I, f I forget when, they, they formed with the the. Conf uh, the CIO, CIO yeah. um, and so now we have the AFL-CIO, but uh, that was kind of the, the main thing when the, um, the AFL started was strictly for those craft, craft uh, trade unions uh, and skilled trade unions. And 
our similar overarching body here is what's called the ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. So all the trade unions will be affiliated to the ICTU. And the ICTU are the contact body for government, etc. So if there's any national talks, we had some unusual, we had a system here one time called national um, agreements where actually the pay was set nationally during talks with the government. That lasted for about 16 years. Okay. And so the government might, and the unions might meet and say, next year it's a 3% pay rise. And everyone got that. Right? It was very centralist. It was quite good in ways because a lot of social progress was made during those talks. Legislation, etc. I mean, our, le our work of legislation here is, we have a lot to do, but it's not the worst. And that's true the way we've worked over the years together as unions and with some people in government to try and change a lot of the legislation. I remember talking to a couple of uh, your guys at a conference one night and they couldn't believe that by law we have 20 days holidays. Yeah. Minimum by law. Most places will have more. Plus on top of those 20 days we have nine public, 10 public holidays now. Right? So every worker has 30 days off a year minimum. Paid leave, you know. So we have good social legislation. We have quite good laws for redundancy, for um, minimum notice, Payment of Wages Act. And they were all brought in to being by trade unions, lobbying and working with governments to bring in particular legislation to. And um, we're very proud of our role in that. It's, some of the legislation here is quite good. That's good. I mean, even down to the likes of, we have a legislation here called, and some of it has come from the European Union. Some European Union directives have been transposed into Irish law since we joined in 1971. So things like the transfer of undertakings, which means if I'm with a contractor on a project, say there's 50 of us working with a contractor on a project, and he goes bankrupt, the new contractor who comes in has to take on those 50 people with our terms and service and okay you know so that's another layer of security yeah an employer can't engineer a walk away from a job you know the people have to be secured yeah so there is don't get me wrong there's more to do um in fact we've just we've been lobbying the government for a long period of time and i noticed they've just announced this morning that they're going to bring in a um, social security payment based on a proportion of your pay rather than a flat rate yeah so what's good about that is that you don't get that immediate big hit of going straight down to the minimum social security it'll be phased in now that's quite common over europe you know so it's something we've learned from being in europe but also yeah. from talking and working with other european countries and working with other european european unions so um again it goes back to how, how important those international relationships are yeah to learn what's in other countries to learn how they do their work and how they negotiate change. So I think that internationalism is, is, is a huge thing. Okay. Um, something, uh, we have a big, I, I, would, I don't know if it was a deficiency or how we want to word it, but um, we have a struggle getting more women in the trade in the United States. And we were talking about um, Constance up there. Um, and, um, 
maybe you can talk a little more about her being, because I think a lot of people don't maybe realize she was the first person to run a trade union, but um, maybe lead up with that um, or follow up with that. Uh, do you struggle getting women in the trade here in, in the country? or is We that... do. There's no doubt about it. Um, our density of females would be very similar to your own. Very similar. But it's improving. Um, we've took a number of steps ourselves, first to improve that. And when I say we were formed by a woman, Countess Marfish came to the, to the crafts and said, look, will you form an Irish union? So technically she was instrumental in setting up the union. But even at that time, it was all male dominated, basically. The engineering trades in particular mm -hmm. are very male dominated, yeah. you know, compared to manufacturing shops, whatever, you know, yeah. you have a much higher density. <clears throat> and then also because you had a, a unique situation in Ireland up to, up to almost up to, up to the seven, almost to the seventies where we we're a very conservative country and the church dominated the country to a huge degree. And if a woman got married, she had to give up her job. Wow. Right. That was in the public <clears throat> service for years here. So, but to go back to the question, and we're working very hard on younger people and female members. Um, and what we've done in the last few years is we have set up a committee for female members with an official responsible for that, and the same for young youth and a person responsible for that. Every branch, local as you call it, every branch must have a reserve seat for a female member and a youth member. Our National Executive Committee, uh, we reserve two seats on that for um, two female ele members elected from that female committee and the same for the youth, two members for the youth. Okay. And from those two members then, they elect one, the NEC elects one of those onto our Executive Management Committee and same with the youth. So now at the highest level, youth and female have a seat at the highest level in the union on our management committee. So I'm proud of that as a development. Um, we're working hard to um, get more female members. There is a drive even at national level to get more females into apprenticeships. And what we were successful in negotiating was with the drive for apprenticeships, the government here now have announced a 4,000 euro grant for every apprentice you take on. But we've, got, we've negotiated that to be doubled for female. Okay. So we hope that will help grow. And I can see it already. I can see it already. Um, all our employers now are taking on some female apprentices. So we can, that'll start to filter through into, into yeah. qualifieds in the, in the near future. So I see that cohort growing in a, in a major way over the, hopefully over the next okay. few years, you know, down to those initiatives. Yeah, because it, it's, a, it's a huge discrepancy. I think the last several years in our local, I can speak for any way, it seems like we're, we're getting more of those ladies coming in um, um, to, to get into the trade. I think there's been a little more of a push from our contractors to, to step up and, and bring them in. I think they're realizing with kind of the, the I, I kind of look at it as maybe the change in the technology we've got, you know, before it seemed it like, you know, if we go back, you know, even probably 30, 40 years ago, um, the trade was more 
heavy physical, yeah. uh, especially on the construction side. And as we start using better ways to work better, uh, save our bodies and stuff like that, uh, there's there's more resources out there. And I think uh, um, benefits for, for women anyway to, to get into the trade. It hugely, I can see it happen. I see it in manufacturing, especially where, look, we all know what construction is and we have to work safe, but in the big multinationals in manufacturing, the safety is a completely different level. And we notice that's where the female apprenticeships have started to come through first, mostly because they've eliminated a lot of the risk with machinery, with new yeah. work practices, technology, okay. you name it. And the same will ha is happening in filtering construction now as well. And they're probably so, less likely to take some of the risk that some of the, the males would yeah, yeah, when it well, comes to doing well, some, some we've work. all seen those videos. This is why women live longer than men. We yeah. do stupid things at times. Yeah. You know, and um, definitely. And that other perspective is good in any job, right? And by the way, when they were negotiating that um, doubling of the grant for apprentices, they were saying for female apprentices. And I said, no, it has to be for all apprentices in areas where they're the weaker group by far. So, for instance, that doubling of the grant applies to taking on males in hairdressing, which are traditionally dominated by females. Mm -hmm. So we were saying, you know, it should be to, uh, to encourage the lesser representative groups to be taken, to grow. So they've taken that on board as well. So, okay. um, so it's really not a gender thing. It's about um, encouraging a greater diversity in the trades, okay. in, in the particular section, wherever it is, right? Yeah. So we'd be quite proud of that as well. And we've taken a view as a union, if we're to grow, why would you disregard half the workforce? Yeah. It's 50, it's, I think it's something like almost 51% to 40, just over 49% here in this country. 51% female, 49% male. Yeah. So why would you ignore half the workforce if yeah. you want to grow as a union, yep. right? So we have to see how we can work on that and how we can get them to grow. Okay. Well, maybe what are, we, we talked about, you know, trying to get women in the trade uh, and youth. What are some more of the challenges? And, and maybe one of those, maybe we can start with, do you have a, a, any issues getting, you talked about the youth, but is there, is there a challenge getting those younger um, 20 year olds to come into the trade with all the other technology and stuff like that when it comes to physical work or, and I know that's changing, but has that been a challenge anyway? Um, the best way I could describe it is there has been a tradition in Ireland in, in the home family environment to push toward level education. We call that college toward mm -hmm. level. And it's because of, Ireland always had a high degree of, of college education and it's gone higher and higher. And that's worked to our benefit. That's what attracts multinationals into the country, etc. right? Um, however, everybody can't go to the level or, you know. So in the unions, we've, we've, tried, we've promoted now lately, the trades are getting a much bigger promotion. For, for years ago in schools, for instance, um, it, the career guidance teacher would be Storm, steering people towards third level all the time yeah. because it helps the school's points rating that they get so many into it, you know. But now we have a thing called, if you want to go to third level in Ireland, into college, 
you apply to what's called the Central Applications Office, the state run, and you apply there depending on the number of points you get in your final exams. And then there's certain course, courses offered to you based on those points. And for the first time ever now, after 50 years, 60 years of that, they've actually putting apprenticeships on the CAO website. Okay. So when a person goes in to see what job, goes on to the central applications office and see what job will I like to go for or study for, now apprenticeships are offered as part. Now, they don't go through the CEO procedure, but at least that option is there to see what they are. So that's a start. That's a huge start. Uh, also then, obviously, pay is a huge thing. People want to make up their mind what they want to work at the future. It has to provide for family and yeah. for your children. We're quite proud of the pay rates we have in this country for our craft workers. They would be well, well above what we call the average industrial wage. Um, and that's down to us as a union. Nobody else, I'd argue, right? Yeah. And we've been very successful in that. And the other big challenge, and unions don't often, certainly workers don't often focus on this often enough, is just change itself the way the workplace is changing, the technology is changing because, and that's down to education, 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 because people fear and change. And unless we give them the right message, they won't be open to that change. Yeah. They fear, for, for obvious reasons, if you've done this, a particular job the same way for 20, 30 years, to be told that's all changing, there, it, there is an element of fear there. So we have to be able to educate people. But we take a different approach. We try and make it be more proactive and say, as I said to you earlier on, the more you know, the more you can share it's yeah. your labor. But also it's the real world. And a very wise old union guy from Kenny said to me one thing, and I, I, it stuck with me all my life when I'm meeting our members. And he said to me, change is going to come regardless. So you have only two options. You either engage and manage the change or you let the change manage you. Yeah. Simple as. And I've always taken that approach. And the union has always taken that approach. If change is coming, we'll engage and we'll make sure we can steer it to the best effect for our members as well. Yeah. And that's the way we always try and okay. approach it. So those are the main challenges. You, you always have the other things, qualifications, skills. We're quite lucky. Workers come from outside jurisdictions, as I said earlier on, doesn't really affect us so much because of that QQI level we have. And if they want to get onto that proper level, they have to more or less work with us through SOLAS anyway to get to that. So um, we want to get more and more into that training aspect of that because if we can be seen as the union to upskill you, to get you onto that thing, people are going to gravitate towards us more. So we see that as our major growth area the post, what I would call post-apprenticeship skills training. Yeah. You know, I think that's our major, and we're willing to invest heavily in that now in the next few years to have our own training center and to put in courses and to run things that make our members um, more, just in a better place to provide yeah. steady employment and good employment for our members. Yeah. Uh, other than that then, I'd say the other thing then is trade unions, uh, this is what, and some I've learned from engaging with yourselves and other unions, is to make better use of technology. It's, there is so much you can do. Um, I don't mind saying that our systems here were quite antiquated. I yeah. looked at them and I said, look, we have to change all this. 
And for a small union, we've invested quite heavily in investing quite heavily in technology. Now, I will admit, COVID has kind of escalated that, yeah. right? And we had to react. Um, but we're looking at, and I know members, member your unions, all unions have apps now and stuff like that, but we're looking at electronic union cards rather than paper union cards or plastic union cards. Yeah. Because selfishly, if, we, if you have your union card on your phone, we have a quite a degree of control of it. Right? Yeah. Rather than if you have a card. Right? So there's all that type of... So technology is going to be key because it's all about technology and communication with your members. Yeah. Um, we were just talking to a company from the UK the other day who uh, do um, electronic balloting. So if we're holding big national ballots, we reckon we can do them electronically. So we're looking, we're discussing that option with them at the moment. Okay. So... And that's all quicker response. You can run a ballot quicker. Because the problem we have, if we're rushing, running a national ballot, um, say, for instance, we've companies here, the public service, which is health, education, it's a big part of our union. We have a lot of members in that sector. So there's currently pay talks starting on a national, a national pay agreement for the public sector, again, follow-on agreement. And if we were to ballot, if, if you were doing that electronically, usually that ballot would take three weeks, months maybe. Again, you write to people, send them out ballot paper, come back. But you can do it much quicker now if, yeah. you, if we go electronic. And people want that certainty. Yeah. You know, here it is. Is it going to run? You know now fairly quick. Yeah, things, things are moving pretty quick and, and uh, everybody's getting, you know, use, we use our phones for everything. Everything's oh. instant and uh, now. I mean, it came home to me a good number of years ago, and I'll admit, while I, I love to see it and see what's going on, I'm not the best, I wasn't rare to it, right, As, like younger people are. But I remember when I was an official in Watford, uh, a guy rang the office one day and he said, I'm working on a hospital um, that's being built out here in, in, in County Wexford. And we want, I was just inquiring, what's the register agreement, what's the national rate to pay, travel, subsistence, and uh, he rang the office. So I was out at a meeting. I came in. Secretary said, here's a drink this guy back. He wants to know. You know. So I rang back and he says, oh, it's okay. I went on the website. I got I downloaded it all. I have it. I said, that's fine. I said, so look, I'll call up. And I many he's walking up there. He says, about 20 of us. I'll call up and I'll organize him. And I'll get. He says, oh, it's okay. I've, I've given it all to the guys. I've told them to apply online. You know, so the point I'm making is technology is there. We have to use it. Yeah. Everyone else has used it. Those who want to stop unions will use technology, right? So unions have to use it to the yeah. best of their ability to make it work for them. For sure. Um, something else, something we started here in, in the States, in particular in our local here the last year. I think they had some classes at Ann Arbor during the ITP this year. Um, deals with mental health. Has mental health been any bit of an issue here? In, it's in Ireland. something that's coming more to the fore. Um, and again, I think COVID hastened that to a degree. Um, and I'll say this as a male-dominated union. We don't like to talk about things, yeah. right? Without a doubt. Um, women are much more intuitive. They're much better tuned into that type of thing than guys are. Um, you only have to look at the, say, for instance, suicide rates, predominantly young males, 
right? So we have to start working on the, what's, what is, what's driving that, what are those reasons behind it? And it is a conversation now that's starting to take place. And how we've tried to hasten it among our members, particularly in construction, is um, we have a thing here that the, both the employers and unions paint to call the Construction Workers Health Trust. So we can go out to building sites, construction jobs, run a clinic uh, on, say, skin, care, skin cancer awareness, working outside. Okay. Um, they can take, they can give people blood pressure health checks. And now we're trying to work um, mental, mental well-being into those. So people have an avenue to come talk. If okay. We did predominantly see that from the Australian Union, which ran a very successful project called Mates in Construction. So someone, everyone would have someone to talk to if there was an issue. Mm -hmm. So it's going to become a bigger, much bigger part of, um, of, of that awareness campaigns that you'll be running as a union. Um, and we have to do it because society is changing. Yeah. Technology is a great thing. It's a great help <clears throat> in some ways, but it brings us other pressures. There's no break from things a lot of the time. It's constantly, if someone's ribbing you, um, they can do it 24 hours a day now. Yeah. You know? And things just seem like they, they go faster and faster. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, it's hurry up, get it done, and move on to the next one. Yeah, but it's also if somebody, if someone's bullying you, before someone work was bullying you, they could only bully you eight hours a day. Yeah. Now they can do you 24 seven with social media, yeah. with, you know. So all that mental awareness is, is, is really something that has to be worked more and more on. Uh, no way are we experts, no way we're not brilliant at it. It's new, it's something we're trying to learn, um, but it's something we have to work on more. Yeah, no, I was interested, you, you brought up the, um, you know, coming out and talking about, I would refer to as a health fair. We just wrapped up a health fair in Kansas City and it's actually, we released, I'm, I'm our, peer support leader for our local there in Kansas City, 533. And um, I was actually kind of surprised how many people um, did come by and talk and want to know, you know, what about this? And some of them were, were for family members with kids going to school uh, because that can be really tough when it's in college and things like that. Oh. But uh, I was surprised how many did actually stop in and, and because the last, like I said, COVID was kind of tough. Um, we go into, uh, you know, we we think with construction, for example, everybody can handle everything, but, um, and, and on those construction guys, when you got 10, 15, 20 guys on a crew, they're all great for the most part working around each other. But um, when you tell somebody you have something that's bothering you mentally, they, they, uh, you know, shy away and don't yeah. want to work with you. And I'd imagine it's worse in bigger countries like the States or Australia where you work a lot away from home. Yeah. So when you're finished work and you go back to that room on your own, at least if you're going home from somewhere, it's a different thing. Yeah. And like I said, in Ireland, we don't have that many people stay away a whole lot and work because it's such a small country. Yeah. We've guys from, we have guys who would drive from Limerick to Dublin every day for work, you know, you know, Cork, Waterford. So most people tend to get back home yeah. at some part of the, you know. Um, and that is, when you're back in that room on your own at night, 
if there's anything pain in your head, it's going to get worse if you're yeah. in that space and you have no one to talk to. You no, know? It, that's what we're seeing right now in the States is with all the big um, battery plants and different chip plants we've got going on. People are traveling all over the country, uh, you know, going to these big jobs because a lot of hours and good pay. and, mm -hmm. and But like you said, when they go home at night, uh, being by themselves and not being able to share or afraid to share. Uh, um, so that's one of the things I know we're working in, in Kansas City to try to, uh, we call it mindful momentum, but try to give everybody resources. And we just released a, uh, uh, Lisa just listened to the, the podcast we did here on our health fair, but we just released a, basically it's a, a, a call in number. People can call in and, and there's right now, I think there's nine of us instructors and four apprentices just completed their class. So we got 13 individuals they can call um, and whether they just need somebody to talk to and get something off their chest or if they got a question about finances, we can kind of talk them through that and give them basically a resource to, to go to if, if need be. And I'd imagine that isolation you get on the bigger when people are away from home so that is compounded by alcohol or whatever yep. because sooner you go back to the room then on your own you go to the bar with the guys maybe and you know yeah so there is a kind of a, a cycle that you can easily find yourself in yeah you know so having someone to talk to is a huge issue yeah. you know it's a huge element a huge part of it especially someone you can trust yeah you know so that's well, very good um as we kind of start winding down here is there anything else you would like to share about um your locals here compared to the rest of anybody listening in the states or anywhere else in the well, country i will share about your own locals and i've been to a couple of them i'm very impressed with the turnout you still get to them right we have an issue with that's dying down it's dying down because of technology and the level of service we provide by other means. Um, 20, 30 years ago, our branches, our locals would have been very well attended. But then we brought in the likes of regional offices, 24 helplines to ring. And the guy is no longer going to wait a week till the next meeting when he can ring straight away. Yeah. And that's why it's added to the service and members are appreciative of it and it does work. It's taken away from the attendance to the locals because years ago they had to go to the local, the branch to get their issue raised and solved. Now they can do it by a helpline, by a website. Yeah. And they can do it straight away. And the plus is they're getting, they feel like a, bit, a good service, but the, the minus is, so it's how you reactivate those locals and use them for other aspects. Maybe the likes of political campaigning or you know, campaign on social issues rather than um, their workplace issues, which in fairness won't wait for a week or two or three. So yeah. it's how you do that. And look, the other thing, the only thing I would say to your members back in the States and to any union around the world is that as trade unions, we have to work more and more together. I was over at your conference and I remember talking to one of your guys afterwards. I used the line and I said, multinational is no, no borders, right? And I don't just mean country borders, any kind of a barrier, they look how they can get around them. I've seen the greatest rivals in business work together on a project if it's yeah. two of them, right? Unions have to become much more multi-international in how we do our business. 
and how we deal with companies and how we can represent workers wherever they are. And a win, if we, even a win, I was down on holidays in Australia um, a couple of months ago. I have a daughter in Sydney. We hadn't seen her for two years and we were anxious to get down and we're saving for years to get there. So we went there anyway. And um, I was just watching how everything is so international now. It's just, and a win for a union in, an, in any country is a win for all unions because yeah. it spreads. And I was privileged, I was asked to go on a march. There was a big march in Sydney about uh, silica dust in construction and, and the health concerns around that. And I just was saying, if they win that in Australia, it'll have a knock-on effect everywhere else in the world. So a win for any union anywhere yeah. is a win for all workers. And we have to work together to yeah. best represent them wherever we can. Yeah. And I think the union movement knows that now. And they are working much more closely together than ever before. And the better, that's the better for not only our members, but for all workers everywhere. Yeah. No, I think uh, way too many of us probably try to look at just what's out in front of us instead of opening our eyes up and realizing it's, it's a national thing. And like you said, it's, it's an international uh, where we all need to be working together. Well, what I just say to even our members is we're primarily a social movement, trade unions. We represent our workers. That's, that's our number one of course, but we're also a huge social movement for, for betterment, for better change. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any good, worthwhile term and condition of employment in the world, it was trade unions got it first. You name it, yeah. it's trade unions got <clears throat> it first. And it spreads out everywhere. And even if even non-union workers benefit from trade union workers, and trade union activity. Because if we're successful here of getting in, like the likes of that SEO, that get that sector employment order, that guarantees the minimum pay, sick pay and holidays in a sector, it's for everybody. Yeah. So we rise the tide. And the more people are in a trade union, the higher we can rise that tide. Yeah. No, we just finished a contract with our uh, um, <coughs> local contractors and uh, uh, and that, that same thread goes all the way through is, you know, as, as we settle on our contract, we know that all those non-union workers are looking at what we're doing because they know that in order for their employers to keep them working, they're going to have to pay them more. Yeah. So it, it, it does spread out to everybody. And what the message we have to get to them is the more members we have, the higher we can raise those boats. And non-union workers have to realize that, that the more we get together, the more we can raise those boats yeah. for everybody. Very good. Is there a chance we're gonna see you uh, in ITP this year at, uh, in Michigan? In Michigan? Yeah, uh, for Ann Arbor for the- Oh, Ann Arbor, that's- It'll be in August. Oh yeah, next year. Yeah, next year. Sorry, you said this year, I thought it was Miss Nelson. Well, I thought you were there, you were there this oh, year, Oh, there right? this year, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I think I, I told Lisa, we were in the uh, um, stadium when they were during graduation, I told her, I, I'm pretty sure I saw Patty's yeah. name flashed up there. I have a nickname, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the UA and the IBW, we have such a strong relationship. I mean, they keep asking us over, and we can't go to everything. Like, yeah. We've had jobs to do here. And, uh, 
But I do love to go to that because to see that training and the level of skills and the way it's run and the way it's done. And we are, COVID obviously again took a break from things. We were de developing a much closer relationship. Things took a back seat during COVID. Now, next year we will, we will send a couple of apprentices over to okay. the competition. That'd be great. Right? I can guarantee we will do that. Um, in the past, we did send over one year four guys for training in an hour, and they got trained up in a couple of uh, modules. And so, um, and something else I'd like to look at in the future with unions would be maybe some apprentice exchange or, you know. Okay. Yeah. So we might be able to send an apprentice over to somewhere and one could come here for a particular period of time. I know that employers would be interested in, in, in running with some of that. And that's just, you might, not, you might think that's a gimmicky thing, but to broaden a person's mind and horizons is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. You never look at something the same again once you've had that particular experience. Well, and it's kind of the concept behind them bringing an apprentice from a local to ITP to see, hey, this, is, this is what it's all about, uh, get an opportunity to see the, the apprenticeship contest, which I... I kind of reluct. I, I uh, don't have that opportunity because I, I teach yeah. a class in the morning yeah, and a class enough. in the yeah, afternoon. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, I, I wish I could skip a class and go to uh, check some of the other things out because there's a lot of stuff going on during that week. But uh, and, and I look, the one thing I did, I do love greatly about when I go to the States is that, and I was a bit, not suspicious, a bit taken aback at the start was, that huge, genuine um, connection those Irish heritage have for Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just incredible. And um, I didn't realize how strong it was till I got to see some of it in action over there. And there is such a strong, um, I, was, I was talking at um, the IBW's conference and your own, and I said, um, the Irish immigrants who left here during the real bad times in the 20s, 30s, even prior to that, when they got to the States, the one thing they wanted to ensure was that to build a country that hasn't got the same issues that they've left behind. You know, so that's why they got so active in the labour movement. Yeah. And to make sure that they could be paid properly, that's why they got so involved in politics, so as they'd have a say in how the country was run. Something they didn't have here for hundreds of years. Yeah. And if you look back at the history the, or the labor movement in the States and political movement in the States, the Irish involvement is just massive. Yes, it is. I was in Chicago um, and I went down to, I was actually the IBW's local, it's joined the Global Power and the Astors down one night. And you walked in and there was, all the former business managers, and at least 50% of them were Irish. Then you had Italians and some Poles, but the vast majority were Irish. You know, and that's in any local practically you go yeah. to. And I take great pride out of that, you know. In fact, I was talking to one of your guys from San Francisco, and his father came from Ireland, and this guy's retired now, so his father would have gone, you know, back in the 30s. Or, and he just said, um, they settled in San Francisco. I said, why did you settle in San Francisco? And he said, my father worked in every state in the States till he found one as wet as Ireland. 
That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and he stayed there when he found similar weather, you know. Yeah. So, the, but there's just that connection, you know, that sense of fair play, that sense of hard work, and it's just stood him in a good stead, yeah. you know. Nice. One of the things I did forget to ask you about, and then we'll wrap up here, is um, when did Ireland uh, or Trade Connect join the UA and, and kind of, I think you kind of already mentioned what the reasoning for that was, but maybe kind of just re go back over that. Well, I'll show you in the room next door. The first International Federation Agreement was signed in 2015. Okay. And it's been continually renewed since. And basically that was an agreement to, it's just basically a, mutual, a mutually beneficial agreement to cooperate in areas such as training, um, sharing ideas, um, saying, look, we've run a very successful campaign in recruitment in this area. Maybe you might want to try this out. You know what I mean? So if you're working with a union and you say, for instance, um, and I've had this from some of other unions around the world, you say, oh, God, your union has grown by 30% in the last 10 years. How did you do that? Yeah. Right? And then you learn from each other. And we've learned a couple of successful campaign tricks from yourself, and we've used them here from what we've learned in the, some things we've learned in the States and some things we learned from the Australians. And um, I'm sure they've learned a thing or two from us. Yeah. Right? So it's all about that constant exchange of information. What, we've, what we do as a union, this might suit you, this might not, you know. And we, we learn from each other. And I have to say, um, it's certainly been to our benefit, and I hope it's been to the benefit of the, the other unions around the world, yep. particularly the States, and particularly yourselves in the UA. All right. Anything else uh, you want to share? We've talked about quite a bit here in the last little over an hour. So. Yeah, I think that's about it. Now, I think I've gone through most <laughs> of what we do and what we... Um, Curtis, I have to say now, it's, look, it's great to see here. It's great to see somebody doing that little bit of extra work the podcast people can hear and listen to and see yeah, like, that. You know. like, I think the biggest thing is, like I said, talking with different people, and you mentioned the um, engineering, and, and that's one of the things I've heard was that your union was different because of the engineering and, and like I said, electrical, because maybe people took a quick glance, but they didn't realize that you had 20 of 25 trade unions mm-hmm. underneath the Trade Connect, yeah. and you do have pipe fitters and plumbers. And, but, well, uh, there's 21, 25 trades. It's yeah. just the one union. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they would have come originally from other unions. The last amalgamation we done was in 2017. Um, UCAT, the Union for Construction and Allied Technical Trades, came into us, which brought in carpenters and painters. Okay. Right? Um, and that was trades number 19 and 20, you know? So it was a mixture of amalgamations, mergers, probably a takeover in the past, you know, whatever. But um, look, our objective is, we have this thing in Ireland which is unique. They don't have it in the UK. Um, thank God we still have it here. We have a thing called spheres of influence agreements. So the Irish Congress Trade Union is the overarching body. Unions have an agreed sphere of influence, right? So we won't organize teachers or nurses or because we have that agreement and our sphere is um, craft and engineering workers. And that's what we 
focus on because we think it's it's specialist it's i think if you have too broad a church um the lesser ones lose right um so i think that thing about specialist unions with special is a, is a good thing because you can focus on what's really relevant relevant to your people um there's a couple of big general unions in ireland and i i, I feel some of the some of the sectors get a bit lost because they're small in numbers compared to a bigger yeah. cohort. And if I'm a general safety union, I have to focus on what's the generally the biggest, quickest fix, you know? Yep. And the other ones can get a little bit isolated. So we're proud of what we do. Um, we've been involved in the apprenticeship system since day one. Um, the, I'm, the, I'm the, work, the worker representative on the National Apprenticeship Advisory you know, Committee. Uh, sorry, National Apprenticeship Alliance, it's called now. Um, Brian, our AGS, sits on the National Apprenticeship Advisory Council. We have this thing in Ireland because it's a state-run apprenticeship system. Every trade training module is reviewed every four years. And they set up a committee and there would be a representative from the unions on it. We're generally the one because we represent most of the trades. And we're, we set on the committee of what's called the subject matter expert, where they review the curriculum at state level. So we have a constant input from day one into, into curriculum for all the trades that affect our people and how they have to be modernized. And I'd like to give the example of um, my son is the same trade as myself. I was what the trade at the time was called a maintenance fitter. Okay. The new name now was called MAMF, uh, Manufacturing Automation and Maintenance Fitter. And that's taken into account the new technological changes yeah. in manufacturing and everything. So we, we, we'd sit, we would appoint one of our members to sit in that committee every four years and they review that curriculum and say, well, look, I think we can lose this particular thing of the curriculum. It's not really relevant now, but these other two aspects have to be brought in, right? So even for our mechanical apprenticeship now, that one there, there's a percentage of electrical work in that which never would have been in the past. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's PLCs, there's, you know, computer pro yeah. computers. So we have to react with the changes in technology. The trade always did adapt and react to the changes in technology. My grandfather was a blacksmith in the mines, which is really the forerunner of the, of the mechanical yeah. trades, right? Yeah. So the point is, it always did react and change to the new demands and new challenges, and we have to be really, really on top of that and make sure that whatever we do, we stay relevant, because that's how guys earn their pay, right? And, uh, uh, I worked with a foreman one time on, on the job. He, he, was, he came from the mines when I was in a dairy plant, but he had worked for 20-something years in the mines, and then he came here. And he was a great farmer, brilliant, technically gifted guy. And um, we were just talking one day about the, the camaraderie of craft workers as well, and the bit of wit and the way they, yeah. you know. And he was telling one, I says, I'll tell you one about your grandfather. He says, I was an apprentice, says, and I was sent down to the forge to, make a, to put an eye hook on the end of a bar. I sat down to the black to the forward blacksmith. So I got the bar and I went down to him. He says, such a guy wants. And he says, what size hole? And he says, oh, God, I never asked. What will I do? You know? 
And my grandfather said to him, tell you what, you, you bring down the hole and I'll bend the bar around it. He said, you know, so he just said how sharp and witty craft workers always yeah. were, you know. There was a bit great camaraderie there as well when you're working with the same bunch of lads all the time, you know. And I did like that in the dairy industry. I was part of a shop of 36 guys and, yeah. you know, you're working with lads. And, oh, yeah, it is, it is, you know. Well, and that's, that's one of the things, you know, we'll hear a lot. I worked on the service side and, and I consider most of the service guys more of the lone wolves because they're always working by themselves. And, yeah, and they go And around. they're probably not as, I don't know if you want to say social with, but they're disconnected a little bit from everybody else. But everybody else um, working on crews of, like I said, whether it's working with two guys or working yeah. with 20 guys, um, it, it, it truly is a, a brotherhood or sisterhood working together. Um, everybody's kind of got each other's back and if you're having a bad day somebody can reach out and uh, make sure uh, you know you don't step off uh, somewhere no. you're not supposed to be it's very important especially when you go back to that mental aspect we were talking about earlier on to have that group around you that you work with and get on with you know because your comrade your roommates they'll pick things up they'll yeah. know you know and it does help when you're working with a group like yep. that. And a union has to be kind of something similar. Um, because I always, I remember going to a funeral of one of our members, his father died, and uh, he, was, he was really impressed about the way so many unions turned up. And, you know, he said it was a great comfort to the family. And I said, well, a union's kind of a family as yeah. well as everything else, yeah. you know. And in the end, we're there for each other, you know, and I, it meant a lot to them, yeah. you know, at that time. So. Um, it is important. Well, very good. All right. Well, again, thank you for your time. No uh, problem. Appreciate you uh, sitting down here with us, and uh, you know we're going to go through and look at some stuff. Yeah.